and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. As our streak of AI scholars continues, I'm very excited to have a new colleague of mine who I've not, in fact, met in person yet. Um, he is uh, the, I want to get this correct, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you are the uh, the Henry A. Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, also known as SICE, also uh, my beloved wife's alma mater, um, and you are a senior fellow at AEI, and you have a new book um, on the Cold War which I'm going to ask you to give me the title because I, for some reason, don't have it in front of me. And um, welcome to The Remnant. Thank, thanks for having me. And the title of the book is The Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Teaches Us About Great Power Rivalry Today. All right. So that's so I have a standing rule on this podcast as an, as an author myself. I think if you've spent the time to work on a book, you at least deserve to be asked a softball question um, at the beginning of any conversation. And so what's your book about? Yeah, so that, that's a good one. And I'm happy, happy to start there. Um, and I'm, I'm delighted to get a softball. Uh, and so the, the book is basically, uh, think of it as kind of like 80% history of the Cold War with 20% applying the lessons of the Cold War to US-China and US-Russia rivalry today. And sort of the, the conceit of the book, I guess, is that the sort of rivalries that we're experiencing with Moscow and Beijing right now they're not unprecedented. They're part of a much longer run of geopolitical and ideological competition, really dating back as far as recorded history goes, and that the United States has really one, one case of prolonged experience with this sort of thing, which is the Cold War. And so if we look back at the history of the Cold War, we should get some greater familiarity with the challenges of geopolitical and ideological rivalry and, and maybe some better conception of how we can succeed today. So um, you use the phrase Twilight Struggle, which is a, a homage to uh, uh, JFK's uh, term for it. You know, why don't, why don't you just sort of explain why you picked that as the title? Yeah. So this is uh, from uh, you know, JFK's famous speech in 1961, where he calls the Cold War the long twilight struggle. And the metaphor is apt. Uh, so, you know, twilight is neither day nor night, right? It's sort of the hazy uh, in-between between these two things that we know. And the Cold War was kind of the same. So the Cold War wasn't hot war of the sort that the United States had experienced during World War I or World War II. I mean, there, there were plenty of wars that were part of the Cold War, but not wars involving the United States and the Soviet Union meeting head-on in the way that the Allies and the Axis had met head-on during World War II. So it wasn't hot war, but it wasn't peace uh, in the way that Americans had traditionally understood it either. And so the, the Cold War really required the United States to do things that were fundamentally new in its experience. We had never built in peacetime a big standing military or a big intelligence establishment, a national security state before. We'd never had a, a global network of alliance commitments uh, and partners that we pledged to defend from aggression. And so this wasn't anything like Americans had understood as peace before. And so it was neither, you know, war nor peace. It was a twilight struggle. And I think we're looking at the same thing today when we look at uh, the trials we're facing vis-a-vis -vis China and Russia. Neither one of them has touched off a U.S.-Russia or U.S.-China hot war yet, but the danger of war is certainly growing. And even short of that, we're looking at sharper and sharper competition for influence in the space short of war. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I read somewhere, in one, I think it was in Foreign Affairs, uh, a piece that you wrote or co-wrote, where you make an important distinction um, that this, to call, to say that, that we're entering into a Cold War-like period, there's a problem in the sense that it's, it's, you're not arguing it's capital C, capital W, right? That is a label that we use for a specific period, 47, 48 to 89, 91. Um, but it's a lowercase c, lowercase w. And um, this sort of raises one of my great P's. Um, Charles Krauter, my late friend, he one of his greatest essays was this Time Magazine essay from 1993, where he, he, 
he raked Bill Clinton and others over the coals for this very common thing back then, which was this claim that you heard from a lot of people, usually from people who were on the wrong side of a lot of arguments, that there was remarkable unanimity uh, during the Cold War and that everybody basically agreed with Cold War strategy, anti-communism and all that, when in fact, if you and you obviously know this history orders of magnitude better than I do, there's a lot of arguments. <laughs> there were a lot of disagreements. There were a lot of disagreements intramurally on the right, and there were a lot of disagreements for sure on the left. Um, so, you know, how do you avoid trying to turn the Cold War as a lesson for history into this monolithic, clear lantern of history to shine on the current moment when it wasn't at all clear at the time? I think you have to embrace the messiness. And so you're, you're right on the money in pointing out that the Cold War and containment, these were deeply contested concepts. And not, not only did we argue about kind of the how of containment, you know, what our policy should be toward Germany or South Vietnam or whatever, we argued about the what as well, a lot mm -hmm. at the beginning of the Cold War. And it really wasn't until the mid 1950s that Americans kind of settled on containment as a strategy. And even then it was critiqued from all sides. It's, it's worth remembering that the term of the Cold War was popularized in the United States by Walter Lippmann, who thought that containment was what he called a strategic monstrosity, that it was a terrible mistake uh, on the part of the United States that would lead us down a path of woe. And he was joined in that critique by a number of conservatives as, as well. I mean, if you look at sort of conservative critiques of NATO and American force deployments in Europe in the late 1940s and, and early 1950s, people like Robert Taft are at the the, the center of that. And so I think this is actually one of the lessons that, that we can learn from the Cold War, which is that, one, it's a mistake to think that there was unanimity and an all-out consensus uh, in American statecraft from 1947 onward. It was actually a lot messier than that. And, and in some ways, I think this is kind of a reassuring lesson, because what we see during the Cold War is that you got sort of basic continuity in American policy over time, uh, no American administration ever just kind of walked away from the containment uh, mission. But that also gave us the flexibility, really our political system gave us the flexibility to argue endlessly about how best to do it. And that helped produce some, some needed course corrections along the way. You could certainly see that with the 1980 election that brought Ronald Reagan to power on a critique of what containment had become during the 1970s. But even before that, you, you could see it uh, as well. And so I think this was actually an area where the, the argument was a source of strength in the United States because it gave us sort of a richer strategic debate than we would have had otherwise. So uh, I'm trying to figure out how to get at this. Uh, yesterday, not that it matters because I don't know when this is going to air, but I was listening to a piece on NPR talking about the rise of neo-Nazi groups and, and far-right groups um, and their connections to Russia and Russia's um, support for, you know, sort of the, you know, this sort of support for the argument that Western decadence is is as ripened to the point where we need a do over in the West and that it's, you know, all the transgender and the gay stuff and yada, 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 and the racism. Um, and I heard they had some expert from some institute in Austria who made this claim that I just found to be really flawed, which was that um, during the Cold War, the differences between Russia and uh, the United States boiled down basically philosophically to just simply um, questions of economics, capitalism versus communism and, and Marxism and all that. And if you, I, I, again, I, I don't mean to sound like you don't know this stuff. If when I read the history of all of this, uh, there was a there were profound cultural, religious sorts of issues at play. And yeah, obviously, capitalism versus communism was one of them, but um, and, and an important one. But one of the reasons why I've kind of pushed back at people about using the phrase Cold War and I and and and. I don't mean this as a criticism because you actually define your terms and, and all that, but um, is that during the Cold War, you really did have a coherent competition of ideologies. 
at least at the top line level. Yeah, there were also, you know, vital national interest things and in spheres of influence stuff and all that. But you really understood that there were, you know, the reason why we put under God and the Pledge of Allegiance in what, 52 or 54 was as a way to sort of virtue signal against the godless atheist hordes abroad. Um, it doesn't seem to me that we really have that with either Russia or China. Yeah, we have ideological differences, but if you ask the normal and average American, you know, what distinguishes our worldview from that of the Chinese or, or the, or the Russians, my hunch is you'll get a lot of different answers and some will have merit and some won't, but it's, it is not this neat and clean argument about competing ideological programs the way um, it once was. Is, is, is that part of the problem about trying to figure out how to muster popular cohesion and, and, and support for a specific program? So I think I, I think I agree that the ideological differences are not as stark or so obvious as they were during the Cold War. But I, I might take a slightly different view on it. And so if you go back and you look at um, Harry Truman's speech to Congress, the Truman Doctrine speech in March 1947, where he asked Congress for a bunch of money to give aid to Greece and Turkey so that they won't be overcome by communist pressure, Truman makes a very ideological appeal for that policy, but it's not one rooted in communism and capitalism. I don't, I don't know that the term sort of communism as an ideology ever appears in that speech. Mm -hmm. It talks about the Greek Communist Party, but not about sort of small c communism in the sense that we're talking about it here. He, he talks about basically um, democracy and free will versus autocracy and coercion, right? And that, that was kind of the fundamental ideological difference that Truman saw in the Cold War. It was about whether people had free choice in their domestic affairs and in international affairs, or they didn't, right? And, and whether coercion and subversion would rule the day. And, and I think that is, that sort of definition of the ideological differences in the Cold War got a little bit muddled kind of by the 60s and 70s critique of American foreign policy, kind of the new left critique, which was mm -hmm. that Actually, it was all just about the expansive tendencies of American capitalism and how that conflicted with the needs of the Soviet system and, and so on and so forth. And so I, I think our own understanding of what the Cold War was about changed over time and, and not entirely for the better. And the reason I, I point that out is I think that that basic cleavage is still there. And mm -hmm. so I, I think 100 years from now, we're going to say that the US-Soviet Cold War and let's say the U.S.-China competition were two parts of a longer-running struggle between liberal and illiberal forms of government for supremacy and in, in international affairs. You know, going back, you know, maybe to the 19th century, maybe maybe before that, you know, carried on in the 20th century and, and now in the 21st century as well. And and the you know the Chinese are becoming more and more explicit about framing it this way when they talk about you know their um, supposed success in containing. COVID, they say it's because we have this particular state with these particular capabilities, authoritarian capabilities, whereas the United States is caught in sort of democratic uh, polarization and tribalization and, and chaos. And I think you've seen, you know, the Biden administration, sometimes effectively, sometimes not, try to flip the argument around and say, yes, in fact, this is an argument about whether, you know, democratic systems or autocratic systems are going to rule the 21st century. So I think that ideological cleavage is becoming clearer over time, particularly as we see kind of what 21st century authoritarianism looks like in China with all of its high-tech attributes. And so, so my hunch is that aspect of the competition is going to become clearer over time. So I, I want to get to actual the foreign policy stuff, but um, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to wrestle with is how seriously they take the new fad or movement, depending on who you ask, um, on the right towards illiberalism, like how seriously should you take it? My own view is that as, as someone who's a conservative of the National Review stripe and, um, and sees no inconsistency between that and sort of neoconservatism rightly understood, that you do need to do some policing of your own side. So at least your own side has a coherent message before you take it to the other side. And I'm trying, you know, in the, I can do chapter and verse on how there were lots of people on the left um, who made arguments 
that were let's just say sympathetic to non-capitalist models, right? Non-democratic models, you know, lots of IF Stone types making apologies for autocratic regimes and siding against America. You didn't have that on the right. And um, it seems to me that one of the really important differences between the Cold War period and now is that the right, let me put it this way, the original isolationist, you know, the original isolationist argument, and I have, I'd be curious where you come down on some of this stuff, but, you know, I think some of the charges of the, of isolationism being a, a wholly right-wing phenomenon are ahistorical. There was lots of left-wing isolationism as well, but the, at least the argument from the right, the sort of taft going back to Washington's farewell address isolationism was that America is so great that we don't want to be sullied by entangling alliances or foreign ideas and all these kinds of things. City on a hill, we're this wonderful place. Let's not get all mucked up by dealing with the world. The argument that you get from sort of the Trumpian isolationist stuff is actually much more anti-American than the original America First stuff because it basically works on the premise that we're no better than the rest of the world, so why should we fuss with it? Um, is there... If you were looking to find parallels about domestic politics from the Cold War period that help illuminate some of these different factions in American intellectual life these days, is there an easy analogy to make or is it just a matter, it's just a different time? I think there is a good analogy to make, although the the political problem is kind of reversed, right? And so mm -hmm. I, I think I agree with you in the sense that I worry about illiberal tendencies on the right and I think that that requires... You know, some policing from within the conservative movement. And that that's important in the context of great power rivalry. It was the left that had that problem at the beginning right. of the, the Cold War, right? And so it was um, some of the big uh, left-leaning unions that basically had to kick out their communists and kick out right. people who were sort of overtly sympathetic to Soviet aims. You know, you had to purge Henry Wallace basically from the respectable left before the Democratic Party could credibly have sort of leadership of the United States and leadership of the free world in waging this this struggle. And I think the, this is the old Arthur Schlesinger book, The Vital Center, is, mm -hmm. is actually kind of an instructive here. And so you see, I mean, not to be too crude about it, you see a little bit of a purge of the left, the American left in the early Cold War, um, so that the left fits within sort of more acceptable confines and is thus, the United States is thus better placed to, to compete in the Cold War. And I think that that task is really more on the right than on the left today, although there, there are certainly some tendencies on the left that I sure. find quite worrying uh, as well. And I think your, your point about isolationism is is right on. I mean, so in, in American history, there are always kind of two sources of, of isolationism. One was sort of, I don't know, progressive isolationism, basically, where you thought that international law and arbitration and peace societies and that sort of thing could maintain international stability without the United States having to do a whole lot of work uh, on its own. And then there was the conservative variety, which is just as, as you describe it, which is that, you know, involvement in international affairs will degrade the United States. It'll undermine this great Democrat, this great Republican project that, that we have. When I see, you know, the sort of the Trumpian right arguments about Ukraine or something today, it's, it's very, very different. And it's, and it's based you know, sometimes in an argument that the United States is no better than any other country, sort of a moral equivalence between the United States uh, and Russia, for instance, sometimes it goes even further, right? Arguing that the Russia is you know, somehow a model that the United States should aspire to be in terms of its reverence for traditional values. And it's, and it's sort of the you know, view that some, only someone who knows nothing about Russia could actually mm -hmm. take, but it is kind of a, a stark departure from the anti-interventionist critiques. And, and, you know, the isolationists, they, they called themselves anti-interventionists, which I think is right. fair. It's, it's a real departure from the sort of argument you would have seen in the late 1940s, for instance, from some of the recalcitrant uh, anti-interventionists of, of the 30s. Yeah, I mean, um, just because you brought it up, and this is, this is one of these issues I hold paper on, um, do you have a strong opinion about, you mentioned Henry Wallace, um, uh, what is your take, just out of curiosity, what is your take on Henry Wallace? I mean, I think the his, I, I think history is closer to useful idiot 
rather than Soviet agent, <laughs> but he did surround himself with quite a few true Soviet, you know, agents or at least assets. Yeah, and and his campaign in 1948 was, you know, fairly openly supported by the Soviet Union and some yeah. of the people around Wallace, I think probably blurred that line a bit more between useful idiot and and something worse. But it, you know, it's it's worth keeping in mind that Wallace was the most prominent of these folks, perhaps, but he was he was hardly alone. I mean, there mm-hmm. there was a real reservoir of sympathy for the Soviet Union, particularly on the American left uh, during the 1940s. It, it came out of kind of a um, romanticized contrast between the Soviet Union and the United States during the Great Depression. Uh, and then also just sort of admiration for what the Soviet Union had done during World War II, where in fairness, it did suffer the vast majority of the allied casualties uh, against Germany, uh, for instance. And so, you know, there, Harry Dexter White, right? There were a variety of people who in some way or another were sympathetic to the Kremlin. Some of them, you know, took that into the realm of outright treason, right? Mm-hmm. And some of them were just sort of um, either slow to realize, you know, how serious the threat from the Soviet Union was or um, you know, a bit too inclined to uh, see moral equivalence between the two sides, but it, he, he was part of a larger community of people and sort of this this general universe. All right, so let's um, fast forward a little bit. Um, so if you had to give me the two or three, first of all, let, let, First of all, explain what you see as the the strategic differences. I mean, I know there is this bit of an alliance between Russia and China and, you know, and I've heard Leon Aaron makes some arguments about it. Um, uh, uh, We've had other people at AI make other arguments about it. Um, The if you'd asked me two or three years ago, my take would have been. China has a huge investment in maintaining some semblance of the status quo in the international order because it benefits from it. Um, Russia, for reasons that I would argue are probably not in its self-interest, but they think are in its self-interest, really wants to destabilize the international order. Um, but that seems a, that all may be changing. What, what do you see as the key differences between China and Russia and how sort of learning from the Cold War should have us treat them differently or the same? So I think Russia is probably limited in the role it can play in changing the international order. It it can be a really powerful and really dangerous spoiler. uh, And we're seeing that, right? It can try to overturn the post-Cold War settlement in Europe. It can project power into the Middle East. It can meddle in elections all over the globe. All of these things are destabilizing. Some of them are downright dangerous. And, and so it's a mistake to think, you know, as President Obama famously said, that Russia is simply a regional power that's in decline and is losing its, its ability to influence the international system. I mean, Putin, every time we think that, Putin has a way of reminding us that it's not, in fact, true. That said, I, I don't, you know, wake up in cold sweats in the middle of the night worried about the emergence of a Russo-centric international order, right? Russia just doesn't have the economic or the military wherewithal to do that. Nobody wants to be a part of a Russo-centric international order. And so Russia is kind of at the extreme end of the spoiler category, far more dangerous than, you know, Iran or North Korea, um, but, you know, basically limited in what it can create. China is, I think, a different different sort of thing. And so while I I do think that China is going to have pretty profound difficulties over the long term because of some of its internal and external Problems. I mean, the Chinese clearly do aspire to create a Sinocentric world order, right? A, a world in which most economic and diplomatic roads lead to Beijing, a world in which uh, American alliances are either dead letters or no longer exist, and sort of a web of Chinese strategic partnerships has replaced them. And the Chinese challenge is much more comprehensive. It's, it's in the economic realm, it's in the tech realm, it's in the diplomatic realm, the military realm, the ideological realm. Uh, and so on. And so when we think about, uh, you know, China, China is much more kind of a peer, a true peer competitor uh, to the United States than, than Russia was, even though I think China, the United States is still significantly more powerful in an aggregate sense than China is. And so there, there is that difference that's worth keeping in mind. 
that said, I, I think it's important not to go too far, right? And so with the, the temptation that we always have is to say, China's the main event, Russia's a distraction. So let's park the Russia relationship so we can focus on China. The problem is that Russia is just too powerful an actor with interests that are too deeply opposed to our own to let us do that. And, and so even as we understand that these are different challenges, I think the fact is that at least for the next decade or two, we're in for sort of parallel containment campaigns vis-a-vis Russia and China as they cooperate more closely with each other. Yeah, I and mean, this sort of gets to my point about how during the Cold War, there was a coherent philosophical disagreement. And, you know, uh, I I agree with you, like, you know, the liberal forces on the right, you know, my, my friend Rod Dreher, who I really like a lot, but he, 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 he uncritically repeated this argument from this other guy, I can't remember his name, recently, that the key to under the Rosetta Stone to understanding the hostility towards Putin's Russia is that Putin is hostile to the gay agenda in effect. And like, I hang out with a lot of foreign policy people and it just like, that's like, and we've been hostile towards Russia for a long time for good reasons and bad. And like the gay agenda stuff is a fairly recent thing. And so there is this sort of urbanism on steroids kind of temptation to say, Oh, they've, they've figured out this other path kind of thing. But with China, with the exception of a sort of, which has now died down a lot, but there was, you know, uh, Tom Friedman used to write what I thought were fundamentally immoral things about China in the late 90s, early 2000s. You know, China for a day was one of his big things. We could just have some more of their autocracy to impose optimal policies. That would be awesome. Um, But you don't hear that kind of stuff anymore. And how much is the fact that, you know, I mean, how many countries in the world, I don't know about some of the smaller Asian countries on the periphery, you know, maybe, maybe this China model is real appeal to people in Singapore or something that I'm unaware of, but, you know, last I checked, you know, one of the, one of the things we had in this during the cold war was that lots of people around the world kind of wanted to live the way Americans do. They kind of liked the idea of, of, of an open culture and, and democracy and, and entrepreneurialism and all that kind of thing. I just don't, and again, you read the foreign press more than I do. I don't, I, I see every now and then some really dumb things from people who kind of like are just power worshipers, but you don't hear, you know, I, I see more evidence that kids in America want to be like North, like South Korea because of K-pop than I see anything like, oh, you know, Chinese fashion and Chinese ideas um, or Russian ideas are really appealing and that we need to sort of turn our eyes that way. And, you know, this was part of the soft power arguments sort of in the late Cold War stuff and all that. Does the Cold War example still work if that element just isn't in there? Well, I mean, so you do occasionally see, you know, sympathy for the Chinese Communist Party, like Ray Ray Dalio or whatever will say that, you know, the Chinese have come up with the solution to addressing their society's problems, and it's just a different model, and so on and so forth. Now, a lot of times that argument is appears to be rooted fundamentally in greed, right? Uh, as much as much as anything else, which is maybe another problem that that we can talk about. Um, so, in in terms of kind of the international dimensions of the soft power question, I guess I'm a bit torn at the moment. And so, every year or so, uh, Pew does some global opinion polling. You know, what do you think of the United States? What do you think of China? What do you think of Russia? And you see kind of two, two things that work at cross purposes right now when you look at that. And so one is that um, people in the countries that are our closest allies, right, other advanced democracies in Asia and Europe, um, a couple other places, they worry that the U.S. political system is fundamentally broken, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's a reflection of January 6th. It's a reflection of, you know, polarization and division going back a lot further than that. It's a reflection of the fact that Americans can never... Uh, stop talking about their own flaws in, in mm-hmm. public, which is actually one of our our strengths, and I think it's one of the things that you know makes us effective as a nation. But you know, the world is kind of down on the American political system right now, except when you compare it to the alternatives, mm-hmm. right? And so the same polling shows, um, you know, really, really negative feelings towards Xi Jinping, um, towards China, and the policies that it's pursued, particularly since. COVID began. And so there seems to be kind of an instinctive understanding out there in the world that even a deeply, deeply flawed and troubled American democracy 
is preferable to whatever it is that the Chinese or the Russians have on offer, right? And this is why you see that countries are looking to do more with the United States, even at a time when they have such fundamental questions about America's future. And so I guarantee if you go to foreign ministries in Eastern Europe or in East Asia, you know, they're working on plan B for whatever the, you know, the day after the United States ceases to be a reliable guarantor of the international order. And that's been true for a number uh, of years. And yet in the near term, they're all looking to do more with the United States. And so you see that, you know, even as we're getting out of Afghanistan and not particularly good order, even as there are questions about American commitment in the Middle East uh, and places like Europe, um, you know, the demand signal for American engagement in the Western Pacific, for instance, is is off the charts. And I think, you know, part of that is just kind of geopolitical self-interest. Part of it is a realization that particularly among other democracies, they're going to be far more comfortable in a world led by the United States than a world led by an autocratic power. Um, so what does containment actually practically look like? I mean, if, if that's the takeaway of the Cold War is that containment is hard, it's, it takes different forms, but you, and you learn from mistakes. What are the lessons from the Cold War? But actually, you know, like they, Biden names you a special advisor for containment. What does containment actually practically look like? Well, I mean, we got to recognize that it's going to look significantly different than it did during the Cold War. And in, and in fact, you know, I, I've used the term we should try to contain China in a couple of contexts just to kind of be provocative, because I think that it actually does express what we're trying to do. We're trying to contain the malign expression of Chinese power and China's ability to destabilize the international system uh, or overturn the international system that we have created. And we shouldn't be embarrassed about that. I mean, that that's a legitimate aim on the part of the United States. And so the fact that it, you know, brings back echoes of the Cold War, I don't, I don't think should deter us from, from talking in those terms. But we have to recognize that it's it's going to look a lot different. And so um, this question came up in a talk I did the other day. And so during the Cold War, just looking at the economic side, which is probably the most complicated piece of it, and, and the place where the differences are most pronounced right. between the Cold War and today, you know, during the Cold War, we had basically a comprehensive economic containment strategy vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. We relaxed parts of it at, at times. Uh, so in the 60s and 70s, you know, we engaged in more east-west commerce in hopes of kind of moderating the Soviet Union, sort of an early version of kind of the responsible stakeholder uh, thesis. But in, in general, we said, okay, we're going to try to slow Soviet innovation more or less across the board, right? We're going to try to render them less capable of developing sophisticated military capabilities and so on and so forth. The degree of Sino-American interdependence today is just so profound and the complexity of it is so profound that you can't do anything like that. Uh, and so what you basically have to do is figure out, you know, where are the areas where it doesn't hurt us to have a lot of uh, interchange uh, with, with the Chinese, right? And so if the Chinese sell a lot of T-shirts, right? So long as they're not made with, uh, you know, lab- forced labor in Xinjiang or washing machines or, you know, non-strategic goods. If they sell a lot of that to the United States, I'm fine with that. I don't think we could choke it off if we wanted to. I don't think there's a reason to do so. I think that actually gives us leverage, right? So the fact that the Chinese are so dependent on the world's markets for exports, that's frankly leverage. The United States can use in a crisis or, or God forbid, a, a war, with, with China. And so we, we don't want to choke that off. What we have to do is figure out what are particular sectors where we either have to insulate ourselves from Chinese economic pressure or slow China's innovation. And so we've been kind of experimenting with this when it comes to semiconductors over the past couple of years. And so when we got really worried about Huawei basically laying the world's 5G telecommunications networks Uh, We decided first under the Trump administration, then under Biden, that we were going to choke off Huawei's access to really high end uh, semiconductors as a way of of derailing those plans. And so I I think that's the sort of economic containment you're going to see. It's going to it's going to cluster around sort of specific technologies, specific capabilities that are strategically sensitive, where we'll try to round up sort of small coalitions of like minded states. In the case of semiconductors, there's like four or five countries that really matter in the supply chain. Uh, for high-end semiconductors, they're all U.S. allies or security partners. And we will try to get sort of mini coalitions going around those issues. And so the the overall aim might be similar, right? we got to make sure that China can't 
weaponize its economic strength, that it can't um, sort of leap ahead of us in innovation and key technologies. But the application is going to be much more focused than it was during the Cold War. So, you know, one of the one of the things the Soviets were very good at doing to us in the Cold War, particularly in the the 60s, was um, fomenting discord. I mean, this is one of these things where uh, the, you know, do you ever see the TV show The Americans? Sure. Yeah. So one of the things I love, I, I really like the show, even though it's, you know, it's plausibility rating is not very high. But one of the things I kind of love about it is there's this tendency in American cult pop culture to uh, confirm things that were wildly controversial, you know, 30 years earlier. And so there was a time in American politics, if you were someone sort of like maybe my father or somebody who uh, said, well, you know, the communists, um, they're supporting a lot of these black radicals. They're they're pumping all this propaganda that it's not true, blah, 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 blah. That would that basically would get you tarred as sort of a fever swamper, you know, uh, Colonel Jack Ripper type. And then like the premise in one of the one of the sub premises in uh, the Americans was exactly that. And because it was the truth, it turns out that the Soviets actually did through propaganda, through so, sort of soft power kind of things, but also through like actual funding of some black radical types, um, try to undermine Martin Luther King and support more sort of, you know, sort of Black Panther type people. And I always try to point out that like the 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 playbook that Putin follows is a KGB playbook that remembers all of that stuff. And so the sowing the discord, the, the sort of supporting crazy right winger racist types um, is part of that grand Russian tradition of meddling with our culture. I know that we, it, it, we tried to do some of that kind of thing, but it just, there was an asymmetry when you don't have an open culture in the Soviet union, it's very difficult to sort of, you know, get ideas out and, you know, you can do, you support some Samastat kind of things and dissidents and whatnot. Is there a role that the United, play, the United States can play in, in helping educate the actual Chinese public about what their own government is doing? Because I, 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 I'm pretty sure that most of them don't know about the concentration camps. Um, most of them don't have a f clear picture of what China's done in Tibet. Um, you know, is, is, can that be part of the, one of the lessons of the Cold War is to sort of push back on some of that stuff? Yeah, I think there is a role. I just think we have to be kind of brutally realistic with ourselves about what we think it's going to achieve. And so, uh, you know, the, the United States and its allies did do a lot of what was called at the time political warfare mm -hmm. against the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc. And it was everything from kind of like harebrained schemes to link up with Ukrainian resistance elements in the late 1940s to uh, more enduring stuff like uh, sponsoring Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, which which started out kind of broadcasting propaganda in mm -hmm. the Soviet bloc and then said, okay, we're actually just going to broadcast straight news because we think that one way of undermining Soviet-backed regimes is just depriving them of the information monopoly they have and thereby forcing them to pay a higher cost financially and otherwise to maintain their dominance of those societies. And so I think that basic idea probably still holds. There are some differences. I mean, it, it was easier to, you know, rally opposition against the Soviet Union in no kidding occupied societies in Eastern Europe than it was within, say, Russia itself, right? Mm -hmm. And and so we confront a similar dynamic with with China today. You know, the, the forces of nationalism are with the Chinese government at the moment, whereas mm -hmm. you know, the forces of nationalism in Eastern Europe were against the Soviet Union during the Cold War. But as the Chinese government gets more and more repressive and sort of the information space gets smaller and smaller uh, in China, I think there, there's certainly a role to look for mechanisms just to kind of pipe unbiased news and unbiased sources of information in, into China. Because it, it seems like, and this is an anecdotal observation, there is more and more dissatisfaction within China about the increasingly kind of neo-totalitarian turn of the government over the past decade. And I, I don't think that's sort of like pre-revolutionary sentiment mm -hmm. or anything like that. But but I do think that there is concern, there is dissatisfaction. And so, you know, finding ways of stoking that as a way of imposing greater competitive costs 
on the Chinese. There, there's some really interesting work that's been done as well on, you know, ways of sort of spoofing uh, Chinese big data slash AI enabled social control systems. And so apparently it's it's not that hard to feed poison data into these systems that confuse them and they make, you know, you, you think that the dissident is actually a cat and mm-hmm. vice versa or, or whatever. And so that's that's the sort of thing. It's It's not going to lead to revolution in China and we shouldn't expect that it would, but it can force the Chinese Communist Party to spend more of its time and energy worrying about domestic security and perhaps less worrying about expansion abroad. And that, you know, that's something we should encourage. So just a level setting question. Where do you like, where do you come down on the question of whether the Chinese government's turn, authoritarian turn over the last 10 years, was it inevitable? Or was it uh, contingent upon, you know, Xi's will to power and all these kinds of things? Was was the liberalism the, of bringing them into the world order going to create this backlash no matter what? Or was it something that I'm not saying we could have avoided it with some clever policy thing, but that it, it didn't need to be this way? And I'll say at the outset that there is no agreement on this among sinologists who've spent a lifetime right. studying China in a way that, that I haven't. I mean, I would say I, I think it was going to be very hard to avoid some sort of neo-totalitarian turn like this at some point for a couple of reasons. And so one is that, and, and this was something that the Chinese leadership, even under you know Deng, understood, which mm-hmm. was that the more you integrated into the international economy the more you risked losing control over the political system, right? Because economic Mm. integration would allow in subversive ideas like liberalism. I mean, this is part of what led to Tiananmen Square in 1989. And so as China- Also just the middle class historically leads to demands for representation. That's French Revolution on forward, right? Absolutely. And this, this was sort of the social science underpinning the responsible stakeholder theory. The idea that as China's middle class grew, they would want more political rights and it would force- the Chinese Communist Party at a mellow over, right. over time. I think the CCP understood that as well. And so at some point, you were going to have some sort of reaction, sort of clamping down on human rights activism, for instance, right? And, and other things that were sort of associated with Western ideas. And so that, that's one reason. The second reason is that the Chinese Communist Party, after Mao's death, did something really, really incredible, which is very hard to sustain, which is combine, you know, have a system that is at once autocratic, fairly technocratic, and, you know, modestly responsive to, uh, you know, certain popular demands. And, and that was only possible, I think, because you know, the, the horror show of Mao's reign was in people's minds. Well, we're certainly not going to do that again, right? And uh, you had sort of the turn toward collective leadership, you had the turn toward economic Reform, but it, it's really difficult to sustain that sort of system in an autocracy over time. And so I think it was likely you were going to get a Xi Jinping-like figure at some point who would say, okay, enough with this. We need to consolidate political control in the way that, that he has. But you know, I'm also a historian, and so historians are typically opposed to kind of deterministic right. uh, explanations for things. Yeah, because I, mean, I, 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 I think the guys who said inviting China into the sort of the world trade system and the liberal world order and all that kind of stuff was that when they say it didn't work, I think taking a snapshot in time right now, they're clearly right, you know? Um, But at the same time, and I'm not, you know, I'm not the historian you are, but um, you know, there are lots of moments in world history where you take a snapshot in one moment and one side is proven right by it. And take a snapshot five years later and they're proven wrong by it. You know, it's, it's, it's the, I think the only intellectually, I don't say only, but like a more intellectually honest way to talk about it is not yet because, you know, and so it brings up the, so Lyman Stone, who's a colleague of ours at AI and you forgiven for having never met him because he's never around. Um, I recorded a podcast with him recently and he, we were talking about his uh, demographer for the most part and um we are talking about how i was asking him you know what are some of the lessons learned about the covid era and one of the things and we'd had him on very early in the pot in the in the pandemic and he says you know one of the things that really surprised me was that 
America could withstand basically a million deaths and really kind of shrug at it. And um, uh, I am I don't mean individual Americans who had deaths in their family shrugged at it, but I'm just saying as a political matter, if you had said first week of the pandemic, we're going to have a million deaths. What do you think it's going to do to our society? People would have smart people, you know, including probably both of us would have said that's going to have huge ramifications. And um, and it hasn't um, not necessarily, at least. And even though the pandemic was a big deal in the election, it wasn't about the deaths. It was about, you know, getting back to normal and masks and mandates and, and kill the virus and blah, blah, blah. And part of Lyman's point was that because he lived in Hong Kong for a while and he, he knows China pretty well is he says, you know, if I were if I were some sort of geostrategist guy, if you look at how China reacted to covid where they think. Having more than one percent death rate from covid is a calls into question the legitimacy of the regime um, that suggests that maybe the Chinese Communist Party thinks that their regime is more fragile than um than we might think it is from afar and I, I i have a friend who's a china scholar who told me years ago i don't know if he's changed his mind he says the thing you got to remember the chinese communist party is that they're almost as afraid of the people as the people are of it and that doesn't seem conducive to making a lot of long-term straight line projections about where china is going am i am i missing something no, that that's right. And, um, you know, one interpretation of Xi Jinping, which I find plausible, is that a lot of the repression that is ticked upward under him is, in fact, a response to this anxiety, right? A mm -hmm. response to the fear of losing control for a variety of reasons, some of which uh, we've talked about. And, and so um, I, I think, you know, Xi Jinping goes to bed every night worried that he's riding the tiger or atop a volcano or whatever your preferred metaphor is. And it's just going to be very difficult for the Chinese Communist Party to hold this together forever. And I think sort of the paradox of the current moment is that Xi's uh, political changes, reforms not, is not quite the right word, are probably destabilizing China politically over the, the longer term, right? Mm -hmm. And so ask yourself the question of what is the Xi Jinping succession look like? Well, we have no idea because he's basically gotten rid of anybody who's a plausible candidate to succeed him and said he's going to stay in power uh, as long as he can. And so just as there was huge instability in the Soviet Union, I mean, the post-Stalin succession struggle played out over about two years. I think we're looking at something similar once Xi Jinping passes from the scene. And just because you mentioned COVID, I think it, it's worth mentioning here, you know, China has kind of trapped itself with its COVID policy at the moment. And so it, it is said that, only, you know, even what we would consider to be vanishingly low levels of uh, COVID are unacceptable domestically for China. And it has vaccines that are literally worthless mm -hmm. in dealing with Omicron. And so subsequent waves of COVID, I think, are going to be much more disruptive for China than they are for Western countries, including the United States. And we're seeing this now. I mean, one of the reasons supply chains are such a mess is that China keeps shutting down major cities when you get a couple hundred cases uh, of COVID. And so this, this is probably going to have the effect of you know, retarding China's recovery from COVID. And, and who knows what sort of longer term effect it's going to have on China's trajectory. It presumably won't be a good one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like the, I mean, again, this is one of these you mentioned earlier that sort of nationalism was our friend when we were dealing with the the Soviet bloc country, you know, the war, the, the Eastern European countries under Soviet control. The you know nationalism was a real problem for the Soviet Union because at least by doctrine it wasn't supposed to be a thing anymore. Um, even though I would argue that Soviet Union became explicitly nationalist by the mid '30s, you know. Um, I, you know, people always argue with me about how, you know, communism wasn't nationalistic and fascism was nationalistic. And I was like, oh, really? Did you learn that from, you know, was that one of the lessons of Russia's great patriotic war for Mother Russia? You know, there were a lot of things that the Soviet Union fell back on in terms of sort of nationalist sentiment. But at the same time, it was a real problem for a country with a gazillion nationalities in it. Um, is there a lesson there for how America, because one of the arguments I frequently make is that for all the talk about Jim Crow in Georgia because of uh, 
they're extending of limiting early voting to 10 days instead of 14 or whatever it is. China actually has a real Jim Crow system. The Han Chinese are are considered the superior, you know, I don't know we want to use the word race, but class, you know, class or people. Um, and, you know, obviously the Uyghurs are learning that lesson very, very well. Does it make sense to us? I mean, if we're going to do a all of the above containment strategy of figuring out ways to sort of highlight those, you know, heighten the contradictions, as Lenin would say, about China's nationalities problems. So our colleague Dan Blumenthal has an interesting way of talking about this. I mean, he'll he'll tell you that China is an, isn't a country, it's an empire, mm-hmm. right? And, and it includes all sorts of people who um, don't consider themselves Chinese. Sometimes the Han Chinese don't really consider them Chinese, and they don't particularly want to be there, right? Tibetans, Uyghurs, uh, so on and so forth. And so I, I think it's natural to ask the question, you know, should the United States promote nationalist or other divisive tendencies within this empire and the way that we tried to do with Soviet uh, nationalities right in the 70s and 80s and this is not to impute causation but but simply the nationalities problem was one that the Soviet Union never solved and it was one of the key reasons why the the union broke up uh, in the early 1990s and, and so I think I think it's natural to ask the, the question and I don't know that I have a firm answer on it I guess I would just say that there's Kind of maybe one one or two reasons to be cautious or be prudent in, in thinking about how we we do this. And so one is that um, my hunch is that our understanding of dynamics within some of these communities is rather limited, right? Because these are these are hard to access places for foreigners. I don't know how good our intelligence is, for instance. And what we found during the Cold War was that when we tried to do sort of subversive work in places that we didn't understand particularly well, we, we mostly just got people killed. Mm-hmm. And uh, that this actually happened in Tibet during the Cold War, or not in Tibet. We, there were Tibetan guerrillas, basically, that we trained and parachuted into China, and they all got killed or thrown in jail. And the other, the other thing we have to remember is that, you know, there is, there is a, certain, a certain moral dilemma here. And so the, the Cold War parallel is that in the early 1950s, the United States while never explicitly encouraging rebellion in Eastern Europe, did a number of things that were meant to sort of keep the pot boiling. And what we found in a couple of cases, you know, 1953 in East Germany, 1956 in Hungary, is that when people rose up, you know, we weren't coming to save them. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, a lot of people died. And so we, we need to be sort of attuned to the fact that if you are promoting active subversion against the CCP, that may end very badly for yeah. the people who you think are on your side. Now, that doesn't mean that we should just ignore the issue, right? And so I think that, you know, the United States can do a lot more to penalize China uh, internationally for what it's doing in Xinjiang, for instance, right? And so sanctioning uh, government mission officials and entities that are engaged uh, in repression, blacklisting products, and so on and so forth. And this, by the way, has the added benefit of uh, making the Chinese freak out in counterproductive ways. Mm-hmm. And so there was an episode in early 2021 when the U.S., the EU, and a handful of other democracies got together to impose some mostly symbolic sanctions over repression of the Uyghurs. Um, and the Chinese uh, had a fit over it. And they responded by putting counter sanctions on a bunch of European politicians and parliamentarians. And in the process, blew up, at least for the time being, the EU-China investment deal that had just been concluded that China had seen as kind of a way of driving a wedge between Europe and the United States. And so uh, my colleague, Mike Beckley, and I refer to this and something we've been working on as as bait and bleed strategies, right? And Mm -hmm. and sort of take off the Chinese in ways that won't produce a military reaction, but get them to overreact in counterproductive ways. And they typically do this when you highlight their abhorrent internal practices because they're so sensitive over it. Mm -hmm. So did you think Anthony Blinken's response, you know, that that first summit that they had and I guess it was Alaska um, where China read the riot act about how we have no right to lecture them and all that kind of stuff. Did you think his response where he basically just said, um, you know, we admit our mistakes and and learn from them, that was a, a good response or or not? It's an interesting question. So I, I think that it was probably the the honest response, right? And, and I think in, in some ways it was the, the diplomatically savvy response, which was to 
avoid being drawn into a back and forth over whose whose sins are worse and whose errors are greater, right? Because the you know the CCP, like Putin, they're masters of whataboutism, and it'll lead you down all sorts of cul-de-sacs. And it, and in fact, you know what what Blinken did. I was thinking about it, and there's something of a parallel to what. Reagan administration officials would do, you know, they would push Gorbachev and his aides on human rights. And Gorbachev would say, well, what about racial discrimination in the United States? And Reagan would say, yeah, yeah, it's it's a problem, right? But mm-hmm. we're working on it and we're trying to work through it through democratic processes and, and so on and so forth. And so on all those levels, I, I think the response was, was okay. I think it was um, a little bit more jarring in this circumstance because of the context in which it happened. One, it was, you know, uh, two months after January 6th, right? And so that, that image was fresh in everybody's minds. And so the, the Chinese tirade probably resonated a little bit more mm-hmm. than it would have otherwise. And, and two, because it was the opening diplomatic meeting with a new administration. And so I, I think that the risk that, that Blinken probably took was that it would look as though the Biden administration was unable or unwilling to to push push back. I mean, I think they did find ways of, of pushing back in a variety of, of places, and so I think it's it's a little bit of a complicated issue. Han- handling these charges is, is always tricky, and so I don't know if there is always a right way to to do it. Um. All right. So, uh, uh, in the time we have left, you know, uh, tell me, um, um. What the hell we should do about Ukraine and Taiwan, and are and and is China looking at how we handle Ukraine to think about how they're going to handle Taiwan? So I think China is looking at Ukraine. I don't I don't think it's a sort of a one for one sort of thing where if we don't you know stand up and prevent Putin from overrunning Ukraine, then China is going to attack Taiwan the sure. next day. But I don't think it ha- there's no connection between uh, the two of them, and so I think that the Chinese are certainly looking, for instance at um, how unified will the West be in hitting Putin with lots of costs if he invades Ukraine? Because they know that one of the things we would try to do in the event of an invasion of Taiwan is get advanced democracies everywhere to come down on the Chinese like a ton of bricks right. in the financial and, and economic and technological realms. And so I, I think I think that's a, a connection. I think there's also just a general connection, which is that you know, the Chinese are fairly sophisticated in understanding that Ukraine is different from Taiwan and Afghanistan is different from Taiwan. The problem is that if you get sort of serial setbacks or a number of places where it looks like the United States is in retreat or being pushed around, pushed around, I think that can't help but have some impact on Chinese calculus and could perhaps promote tendencies toward overconfidence. In, in the Ukraine case, I think after a little bit of a shaky start, the Biden administration is actually doing okay and trying to deter something that they may not be able to deter because Putin mm-hmm. may simply have made up his mind uh, at the outset. But you know they have uh, tried to make it pretty clear that if Putin does this, uh, he's going to pay a relatively high cost, not just in the near term, but in terms of you know his overall security posture in Europe may may be worse after the fact. You're going to get a more robust NATO presence in Eastern Europe. You may get new members of NATO. Uh, in countries like Finland uh, and Sweden. And the administration has been sort of subtly advertising some of the technological and financial costs it might impose on the Russians. I I don't know if that's going to do the trick. And and I I would say, I think it's still odds on that there will be a significant Russian military move against Ukraine, just because Putin says, you know, whatever costs you can impose on me for doing this are less than the costs I fear suffering if I allow the current situation uh, to go. In, in the case of Taiwan, I mean, I think Taiwan is different because Taiwan really is, um, it's central to the balance of power in the Western Pacific in a way that Ukraine, as important as it is, is less central to the balance of power in Europe. And so the, the concern I have about Taiwan is if there were a successful Chinese invasion of it, uh, every other U.S. defense commitment in the region becomes much harder to uphold. I think countries like the Philippines in particular will start recalculating their interests uh, vis-a-vis the United States and vis-a-vis China. And so you, you could see a fairly significant erosion of the American position in Asia writ large if you lose Taiwan. And so I, I think there's a stronger case to be made that the United States simply can't tolerate Taiwan falling to China. Mm-hmm. And the way that we have sort of sadly concluded, I think, but perhaps reasonably, 
that if Putin invades Ukraine, it's going to be more of a cost imposition than a denial uh, approach. And so that's one area in which I think that the situations are quite different. So do you think we would fight for Taiwan? So if you ask the American people, they, they say so, right? So mm-hmm. the, the most recent polling on this indicates that there is sort of a bare majority of Americans who would favor using force to help Taiwan defend itself if Taiwan suffered an unprovoked attack from China. And, and I actually think that the odds are fairly good that we would fight uh, to defend Taiwan with one big caveat. I'll get to the caveat in a second. But, you know, ta- Taiwan, I think it's increase- its importance is increasingly recognized by the United States. The Biden administration has been talking about it as though it's the keystone of the American position in the Western Pacific. Biden has sort of, you know, accidentally on purpose said that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense a couple of times now. I think he's being as clear as he can within sort of the existing strategic ambiguity uh, framework. And I will also just point out, I mean, the United States has this long tradition of you know, deciding eventually that it doesn't want to live in a world in which autocratic regimes can just knock over, you know, democracies on their doorsteps mm-hmm. or, or even, you know, Im- imperfect democracies or even just other countries. And so, you know, the United States didn't have a defense commitment to South Korea in 1950. And Truman decided we had to get involved because the international system, the stability of it depended on the United States showing that this sort of thing wouldn't succeed again. And so I think if Uh, There's an unprovoked uh, Chinese attack on Taiwan, and the American president says, okay, this will not stand. I think the American people and the American Congress will follow. The caveat, of course, is is who is the president, right? And does the president decide that this is is worth it? And I think there's there's more uncertainty, perhaps, over that because of some of the issues in the American political system that we've discussed. Yeah, and also, like, we were just having an editorial meeting. And we're talking about how there are a handful of Republicans who are pretty hawkish on Ukraine. And there are a handful of Republicans who are basically the Tucker Carlson caucus. And then there's a big chunk in the middle who are probably more hawkish than not, but they're staying quiet. And one of the points I was making is that a lot changes the second you see tanks going over a border. And if you see cities getting shelled in Ukraine, you know, and civilians being killed in an act of aggression, the median American voter moves towards hawkishness, I would guess. I would argue the same thing is probably true. So the polls are not, the fact that there's a slim majority favor defending Taiwan now probably is a good sign that that majority would grow should China actually do something, you know, do the, uh, I wish I could, I was about to say the unthinkable, but alas, it's not. Um, all right, so the, I had recently had um, this guy, Edward Carr, the deputy editor of The Economist on the podcast, and um he's a british guy and we talked about covid around the world and all that and i was very excited because his name is edward carr and i was hoping that he was like the son or grandson of eh eh car the historian and alas he is not he says he gets asked that about you know all the time and but i was very excited to to discover uh that you are in fact the son of hw brands the historian did you always know that you wanted to go in your dad's line of work? No, not not really. Although when I look back on it, I guess it was it was logical just because, you know, I loved to read growing up and history was what was on the, the bookshelf. But, uh, you know, when I got to college, I tried pretty much every major before realizing that history actually was what I wanted to, to do after all. So, you know, maybe, maybe it was in my blood. It just took me a while to admit that. Yeah, I sort of had the same thing with journalism. I was convinced I was never going to be a journalist, and then look at the mess I got myself into. Um, anyway, uh, uh, Hal Brands, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it, and I um, uh, hope to have you back on and actually just you know to meet you in person at some point. That would be nice, too. Um, so thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Jonah. Okay, so uh, Hal has left the uh, studio, and I... Um, for fear of getting it, of screwing it up again, I did not mention again his new book, which is The Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Teaches Us About Great Power Rivalry Today. And um, um, it was great to have him on. A couple just sort of technical notes. Uh, f- he didn't have headphones. We normally do this with headphones. And when you don't have headphones, we had to, um, we have to sort of put this echo cancellation thing, activate it in the, in the Framfra and the Queen Astray. 
um, connecting to the doohickey and whatchamacallit. And so uh, it means that you can't really talk over each other. So if it sounded like a sort of a ping pong of, of me saying something in the form of a question and him saying something in the form of an answer um, and not really conversational, that's why this happens every now and then. And you just have to let the other person give fulsome answers. The advantages that that um, how clearly has very well formed and concise answers, so it wasn't really that much of an issue. But uh, we did hear some dings from an email type device doohickey, so we apologize for that if we didn't get all that stuff out. Um, I got a, a a a one of our most dedicated listeners. Um, I'll just give her first name, Heidi. Uh, she emailed me the other day saying, after the Leon Aaron podcast, saying, you don't need to sort of worry about, you know, audio quality and all that kind of stuff or mention it or whatnot. And the problem is we don't know in advance when we just recorded this thing whether we do need to mention it or not. So you just sort of say, if there was a problem, we apologize. And and that's the case as per always. So uh, with that, um, thanks again for listening and, um, do get the book if you're interested in this stuff. Um, and, um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>